0: Welcome, foolish mortals, to another episode of Rock and Roll History, the podcast where we grave dive head first in all the hits, hisses, and often overlooked songs and gories throughout the history of rock and roll. I'm your host, your ghost host. But who cares? Come on, everybody, let's go rock and roll! I'm back! Yet again, back from the dead. Yes, since our show today is a spectacular Halloween special, this couldn't be a better time for me to make another comeback. It's like I'm crawling out of the grave in a podcast cemetery, or like I'm Dracula, creeping out of his coffin, ready to soak your blood. But instead of sucking blood, I'm just gonna get in real close to your ear and whisper a chilling rock and roll tale. <laughs> Okay, but in all honesty, I will probably crawl right back into the grave after this episode, but only for a bit. I'm just popping in to let you, my longtime faithful loyal listeners, know that I have yet to actually cross over to the other side. I'm still here, and I'm working away to bring you episodes that will arrive on a regular schedule, and hopefully I can start rolling them out soon. I won't let you down, so please don't lose faith. That is, if you had any faith to begin with. So as always, thank you so much for your patience, everyone. I love you all, and I will be back. But, anyways, enough yammering. On with the Halloween episode. Enjoy! Or die! Today's episode takes place in the 1930s on a dark and foggy road deep down south in Mississippi at a place where two dirt roads meet, a place known as the Crossroads. Culturally, throughout time, a crossroads represents a place of ambiguity. To some, it's a portal between two realms, a place that's neither here nor there. Many believe that they are locations of high strangeness, paranormal, and supernatural activity. People report ghost sightings, tragic accidents, spiritual experiences, visions of cryptids, and otherworldly phenomenon in these places. It is not known why these intersections contain such things, but it's speculated by some to have to do with the natural ley lines of the land, which cause the earth to produce high energy vibrations which could be opening a door between different dimensions. Now, you may be wondering if I have smoked peyote, and what in the world does any of this have to do with rock and roll? Well, just give me a minute, and I'll wrap it all together. So our story today takes place in July 1930. Construction had just begun on the Hoover Dam. The first ever World Cup competition was about to begin in Uruguay, and the New York Yankees' first baseman Lou Gehrig drives in eight runs with a grand slam and two doubles in a 14-13 win over the rival Boston Red Sox. Our tale follows a young man by the name of Robert Johnson. He is a legendary guitar player known as one of the originators of the Delta Blues sound. According to legend, one day the young Mr. Johnson took himself on down to one of these crossroads and in legend has it, he met the devil himself and made a deal to sell his soul in exchange for some ripping guitar skills that could melt the faces off everyone down at the River's Delta. Now, of course, this is one of the oldest rock and roll legends of all time, if not the oldest, one that arguably gave birth to rock and roll. And yes, most of you have probably already heard this one before and are already somewhat familiar with it. But do we really know the story beyond that? Do we know how it is significant to rock and roll? Well, that's why we're here today. So before we get into the creepy, crawly, devilish details of the story, let's hop on into our time machine like we always do and run the clock on back to May of 1911 and set our compass to Southern Mississippi and find out who this young aspiring guitar player, Robert Johnson, really is. Robert Leroy Johnson was born May 8, 1911, as a grandson to slaves in Hazelhurst, Mississippi to Julia Ann Majors and Noah Johnson. His mother, Julia, was married to a land-owning carpenter named Charles Dobbs. Charlie, as he was known, got chased off by a lynch mob of white men for romancing the same woman as another landowner in the area, and he was forced to leave his home and wife, Julia, and their nine children behind. Shortly after that, Julia would meet the farmhand, Noah Johnson, and the two would give birth to little Robert. Noah was often gone as well, so Robert never really got to know his father. After two years of working in migrant labor camps, Julia and her now ten children found Charlie Dobbs living a ways up north in Memphis, Tennessee. He was now living under the name Charles Spencer. They all moved in with Charlie, and they all changed their names, so now Robert was known as Robert Spencer, and he would spend most of his childhood growing up and going to school here. Eventually, Robert's mother would get remarried, but Robert would keep his name, Robert Spencer, as all his friends already knew him by that. Here's a clip of some of his friends talking about how they remember him from the excellent documentary called The Life and Music of Robert Johnson. It is hosted by Danny Glover of all people, but here's a clip.
1: Oh, I'm too old for this shit.
0: Trick or treat, smell my feet, right? Okay, okay, here we go with the real clip.
1: I come acquainted with Robert Johnson when we were boys and we were going to school at that St. Peter's school. We was about 14 years old or something like that and going to school. But well, I always know them about Spencer. That's how I know it. I didn't know nothing about this John until this music come up. And we used to call him Robert Spencer and then Robert Johnson. I wonder where did Spencer come from? I wonder the name Robert
0: Johnson, Spencer, what? But folks used to call him Robert Spencer a lot of times.
1: I just know his mother and his sister and his brother.
0: This documentary is great, and as of now, you can still find it on YouTube. I'll have the direct link posted on our website at www.rockandrollhistory.com. So by the time Robert was a teenager, he found out who his real dad was. This prompted him to change his name back to Robert Johnson, despite never really getting to know the guy. It was also at this time that he discovered he had a profound interest in music. He enjoyed sitting around and wasting the day away playing his jaw harp and listening to the radio. He loved it all. Ragtime, slow ballads, pop songs of the day, but mostly he loved the blues. Instead of working on the farm all day, he would play his harp and he started to pick up the harmonica as well. A friend of his named Willie Mason who worked beside him in the fields remembers Robert nailing three strands of wire to the backside of a house and then sliding a bottle down between the wire and the house to kind of act sort of like a bridge and he would pluck away on the strings all day in the shade. While his friends were out working in the field, this was pretty much Robert's first guitar, and it would become his favorite thing to do, so much so that he would be fired from working in the fields altogether. Robert became totally consumed with all this blues music and would spend his time learning how to play guitar in street corners and going to the juke joints at night around town to see live music. People at the local Baptist church would warn him that playing that devil's music all day was no good. He needed to focus on getting his life together and earn a living like the rest of his friends and young men in town. At this point he was 17 years old and nothing could sway him from playing his music. That is, until he met a girl named Virginia Travis. He quickly fell for Virginia and the two became a pair. His love for Virginia was so strong that they decided to marry even though they were so young. And as quickly as they fell in love, Virginia then got pregnant. She came from a religious family and in their eyes Robert needed to get their act together. Robert agreed with Virginia that he would put his music aside and actually go back to work and make an honest living out in the farm fields. She meant that much to him, and he wanted to be a good man and support his first child and new wife. They moved to a plantation where Robert picked up work, and he was living out his days being the good husband like he had promised. After about eight and a half months, Virginia was almost ready to have the baby, so she headed out of town to be with her grandmother for some support while she gave birth. As soon as she was gone, though, Robert would take advantage of his newfound freedom, and he started to brush up on guitar in his free time. He was going to head up the highway to meet Virginia and the baby anyways when he was ready to come out, so he thought it would be a good idea to stop at some of the old juke joints and stuff along the way so he can get some music time in. By the time Robert arrived to meet Virginia and his new baby, heartbreakingly, he discovered that he was too late. Virginia had trouble with the pregnancy, and she and the baby had both died during childbirth. This deeply affected Robert and it shook him to the core and it didn't help that Virginia's family blamed Robert for her death, saying that he wasn't there because he was out playing that devil's music. Some say this was the exact moment he turned his back on religion and God. He said to hell with all that and he would turn his attention back to the first thing that truly made him feel alive, music. He decided this is where he would find his salvation. He also began drinking heavily too. It was then he decided that he was now going to dedicate his life to music, playing guitar on street corners for nickels and dimes. He was no longer satisfied making a regular old living on the farms. He had his sights set higher than that and thought to himself that he was going to do whatever it took to become a star and make the big bucks. He wanted people from all over to admire his playing. Some time went by and by July of 1930 a well known guitar player named Sunhouse House moved into a neighboring town. Robert loved watching him play and quickly found an idol in the man. He's quoted as saying that he wanted to be just like Sunhouse and he decided that that's who he was going to aspire to be like. Sunhouse would play nightly with another guitar player named Willie Brown. They would play in the juke joints and Robert began to follow them around. He loved watching them play and he wanted to take everything in from them that he could so that one day maybe he could emulate them and their playing. After a while Robert would get brave and when Sunhouse and Willie would take a break he would slink up to the stage and pick up one of the guitars and try to strum a few numbers for the audience. He was a novice to put it kindly and the crowd did not enjoy it at all. Here's another clip from the Danny Glover documentary where Sunhouse describes what it's like when Robert would try to play.
1: But he'd follow me and Willie around on Saturday night and every time we stopped for rest, get the guitar and be trying to play and be just noising the people, you know. And the folks would come out and say, why don't y'all, some of y'all go in and meet that boy, put that, get that thing down, he's running us crazy.
0: So Sunhouse would then snatch his guitar back from Robert, worried that he might break a string, and told him to back off, and the crowd would literally laugh him out of the place. This stuck with Robert and rubbed him the wrong way, and so he left town. No one really knew where he went, but they all said he left town bitter and with an attitude kind of like, I'll show you. One day, I'll show you. So now here we are, where our story takes place. What happens next, no one is 100% certain of. Robert completely vanished for a year, and as legend has it during this absence was when he went down to the crossroads and met with the devil and sold his soul to become the greatest guitar player in the world. The idea of the crossroads dates back as far as the Roman Empire and has deep symbolic meaning in many cultures throughout time representing travels far from home where you may encounter strange and mysterious beings along the way. Similar details of folklore and religion. One religion specifically is Haitian voodoo. Voodoo has roots in Roman Catholicism, but it also incorporates West African spiritual gods. They believe that there is one almighty God, but that you can only speak to it through powerful spirits known as the Loa. One of these spirits is known by the name of Papa Legba, and it's believed to be a trickster spirit who, quote-unquote, opens the path for other supernatural powers, and is traditionally known as the spirit of the crossroads. At the end of the 18th century, voodoo came to the United States through trade routes in nearby Louisiana. And as voodoo and its spiritual magic known as hoodoo spread through the South, tales such as the crossroads and Legba could have very well made its way up to Mississippi, which is where we get the origins of Robert Johnson visiting the crossroads tale altogether. If all this talk of voodoo and hoodoo excites you, I urge you to watch a video on YouTube by the Polyphonic channel. I will have the link posted on our website, www.rockandrollhistory.com, as well. In the video, they describe the tale of another blues singer named Tommy Johnson, and they claim that this might actually be the origin of the Crossroads story, and time has just mixed up the two stories since their names and backgrounds are so closely tied together. They also get pretty spooky and talk in more detail of spirits and such. I recommend you check it out. It's a great way to spend Halloween. Anyway, so back to the story. A year goes by with no one seeing Robert Johnson. Then one day, Sunhouse and Willie Brown are booging on down in one of the local juke joints when all of a sudden the door swings open. And who's standing there but none other than Robert Johnson holding a guitar? The crowd falls silent and Robert walks slowly across the room. He makes his way towards the stage. He then turns around to the audience and starts to play the guitar. And what comes out next leaves Sunhouse House and Willie Brown both gobsmacked. Jaws on the floor, they cannot believe what they are seeing and hearing. They've never seen anyone or heard of anyone playing the way Robert now was. The crowd began to go wild, and the rest is history. Here's another clip from Danny Glover, the movie, about how good his playing really was.
1: Folks all on the poison, just peeping in the doors, hearing him playing. He's just one main being. Yeah, I said, pick that guitar. Well, Robert played the guitar like a piano. That was the difference. And other guitar players wasn't playing like that. When I, when I realized what he was doing, I've always known why he was special. Anything a fellow could do on a piano, he could do it on the guitar, and he did it. He made a machine. That boy made sure so many beautiful cars. He could code and use couple of fingers there and pick and then caught it between the picks. That was his method. And I I I never did work at that. It was pretty hard. Not even work at it. It was easy for him. But it was yeah, it was hard for me. I mean here was this guy playing bass lines, playing rhythm, playing slide and singing all over the top of it. So I mean to me it was like somebody from outer space. It was like I you know it was amazing to me. And it was a sound that you had to stop and listen to. And that's the sound a lot of people are looking for today. Me, myself, I'm still looking for it.
0: So as the legend goes, you head down to the crossroads. Legba, or as some call him, the Black Man, appears. He's dressed very nicely, and you aren't to look him in the face. He will approach you and offer to tune your guitar. If you let him, he will tune the guitar and hand it back to you. And if you take it, then the deal is done, and you have sealed your fate." Is that what Robert really did? Well, mm, probably not. Some historians say Johnson actually went back home to Hazelhurst with his tail between his legs looking for his biological father, Noah Johnson. But upon arriving there, instead he met a blues guitar player named Ike Zimmerman. According to Zimmerman's daughter, Ike was a good man and took young Robert under his wing and let him stay with him. He treated Robert just like family. While staying with the family, Robert asked Ike if he could teach him guitar, and according to his daughter, again, she said Robert stayed for a long time and they went at that guitar like some. She said that she could remember hearing the music because even when he was teaching Robert, it all just sounded so good. Zimmerman would play frequently in the local juke joints, and it is said that he would practice at night in the Beauregard Memorial Cemetery as to not disturb anyone. It's also believed that he did take Robert to that cemetery, and they would sit on the tombstones and practice throughout the night. Ike said himself that, in fact, the only way to really learn how to play the blues properly was to sit on a gravestone at midnight, and then the spirits would come out and teach you how to play. So, maybe the devil did, in fact, show up after all. (laughs) But I digress. So now, upon arriving home and finally having the respect he had once yearned for, Robert would perform and travel around the Delta, where he started to gain a following. (laughs) By the fall of 1936, he traveled to Jackson, Mississippi in search of a music store owner named H.C. Spear. Spear had connections with record companies, and Robert decided the only way to continue climbing up to stardom was to get some recordings done. As soon as H.C. Spear heard Robert play, he connected him with the American Records. And so Robert then went to San Antonio, Texas to make some recordings. The recording session was scheduled for November 23rd to 25th in room 414 of the Gunter Hotel. Upon arriving in San Antonio on the night of the 22nd, Robert was greeted by a bigwig record exec named Don Law. Law told Robert he had a big day ahead of him tomorrow and to rest up so he could get up early and be fresh for the two-day recording session that was ahead of them. Mr. Law said goodnight to Robert and left for dinner with his wife. Upon sitting down for dinner, a phone at the restaurant rang for Mr. Law. And when he answered it, it turned out the police were saying they have arrested a man for vagrancy named Robert Johnson. And then they go they say he works for you? Mr. Law said, yes, and went down to the station to extract him out of the holding cell. The two go back to the hotel, and Law tells Johnson, Okay, Robert, now go to bed and rest up. Here's 45 cents for breakfast money, and we'll see you in the morning. Don Law then goes back to the restaurant and sits back down, but then the phone rings yet again. He answers the phone, but this time it's Robert on the other line, and he says, Mr. Law, I'm lonesome. Mr. Law replies, Bob, what do you mean you're lonesome? Robert then says, Well, you see, sir, there's a young woman here, and she wants 50 cents, and I'd like a nickel. So the next day, the recordings happened. There were a lot of musicians in and out of the studio that day getting their recordings in, so the environment was that of a party. Whiskey was a-flowing, and the good times were had. When it was Robert's turn up to record, however, he took a chair into a corner and faced it to the wall with the microphone in front of him. He did this because he didn't want anyone to see how he played. Was it that he didn't want anyone to steal his riffs, or maybe he was being the responsible gentleman and just trying not to pass on the curse of the devil? But anyway, this choice to sit in the corner turned into one of those happy accident-type things, and the resonance of the corner made it sound like two guitars were playing, and it gave his song that metallic quality that would go on to become that iconic blues sound. One song from the session... Terraplane Blues would become his biggest hit, and it went on to sell 5,000 copies and got onto the radio, which was all a huge deal at the time. After this, Robert would return to the road, this time accompanied by his friend Johnny Shines. The two would ride the rails, traveling from town to town, playing the juke joints night after night. They would travel far and wide to places like New York and even as far as Canada. Here's a clip of Johnny Shines describing that time on the road with Robert.
1: You could wake Robert up, you could quit playing at 2 o'clock and wake Robert up at 3.30 and say, I hear a train making up. He said, what you want to do, you want to catch it? Yeah, let's catch it. You see, it wasn't many jobs to be had at that time. And if you was a musician or something like that, you didn't make a lot of money just sitting around in one place. You had to get around and let people hear you that hadn't heard you. He said, I was at home anywhere I laid my head. And I was satisfied because I was free. I was not under nobody's command. Nobody tell me when, where, and how. I was free. See, Robert was the person that didn't care where he was going as long as he was
0: going, and I didn't
1: either. we just go.
0: Between his travels, Robert fit in another recording session with Don Law again, this time in Dallas. This session was remembered by those who were there as being so, so hot, like extremely sweaty hot. Could this have been a heat wave, or could it be that the devil was present? Hmm? Okay, I'll stop. One of the tracks recorded in this session was Hellhound on My Trail, which is described by blues historian Ted Gioia uh, as maybe his greatest performance. This session resulted in 29 historic recordings and made Robert a couple hundred bucks, which was big money at that time, being the Depression and all. He was fulfilling his dream of playing like Sunhouse and he was making the big bucks, but this new beginning seemed to be the beginning of the end for Robert. He was a huge hit, but he also began womanizing and drinking even more heavily than he already had been. He would continue his Rolling Stone lifestyle and travel town to town, getting women, drinking, making a bit of money, playing his music and the juke joints, and then moving on to the next town. Robert kept traveling and traveling. He even left his old homie, Johnny Shines, behind and began to travel around alone. It was like something possessed him to keep going and going, like there was an actual hellhound on his trail. Upon analyzing the lyrics of the song, you get the idea of what might have been going through Johnson's mind at the time. The lyrics go, I gotta keep moving, gotta keep moving, blues falling down like hail, the days keep on worrying me, there's a hellhound on my trail. This imagery paints the visions of the devil coming to take a sinner away, as if maybe Johnson had something weighing on him, and he saw the writing on the wall, as if he knew the end was near. In this chapter of his travels, Johnson befriended another blues player named David Honeyboy Edwards. Edwards remembers the first time he met Robert, and it was on the crossroads of two streets, Main Street and Johnson Street, almost like it was some sort of fate. The two became fast friends and would play together, making a bit of money here and there, and of course, drinking. One night, in August of 1938, the two went to go play a country dance, and after the gig went to a bar. Robert, being the womanizing blues man that he was, ended up chasing after a young woman who happened to be married to an older guy. It's said that the older guy got pretty offended by Johnson's behavior, and no one knows for sure, but the story goes that somehow the guy sent a poison bottle of whiskey to Johnson, which he then drank. There's not an official account of what actually happened. Some say it was strict nine in the drink this immediately made robert sick and he could not continue to play any more music and he had to retire back to his room in his hotel Honeyboy said he was so sick in bed for three days before the poison really took a hold of him and in the end johnson began crawling around on his hands and knees and howling like a dog before dying in honey boy's arms at the age of 27 the hell hound finally caught him and robert johnson was now only a legend it should also be noted that this is probably the beginning of the notorious 27 Club, which if you're not familiar with, is a long line of famous musicians who died at the age of 27. This includes Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, the list goes on and on. And we'll save that for maybe another Halloween episode. So that anyway, this just leaves us with the nagging question, was it really the devil that came and took Robert Johnson away? Was the deal finalized? I mean, who is really one to say? But it is kind of interesting if you look at it. You can even see the seven deadly sins were present throughout his whole story. I mean, let's just count them out real quick. 1. Pride. He was going around town showing off his playing and stealing girls from their husbands. Greed. 2. He didn't just want to work on a farm. He wanted to be a big star and make big money. He also wanted a nickel. Lust. Womanizing, of course. Remember, though, he wanted that nickel. Four, envy. He wanted to play just like Sun House and the songs he heard on the radio. Five, gluttony, heavy drinking, of course. Six, wrath. He was mad at God for taking Virginia and his baby and mad at Sun House when he stormed off to go learn to play guitar. And seven, sloth, where the story began. Him slacking off, laying in the fields, playing his harp, plucking the strings in the back of a house instead of working. I mean, I don't know whether this is all a coincidence or not. In the end, I think he just knew his time was coming, and he ended up caught by one of those hellhounds that were on his trail. It should also be pointed out that in the end, in his final days, those last three days when he was laying in bed, he even penned a letter to God seeking redemption from Jesus of Nazareth. Like, he knew he lived a life consumed by the devil and evil and In his final moments, all he wanted to do was make it right with God so he could be saved from eternal damnation. Some people say it was the fame that killed him, but it very well could have been just part of the deal that he made with the devil at that mysterious crossroads. Whatever it was, Robert Johnson's story created the myth that is rock and roll. Robert Johnson brought the Delta Blues to the masses. His music directly influenced players like Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Bob Dylan. Every rock and blues tune to this day has a bit of Robert Johnson in it. His playing, his soul, and this this very day, a band plays a chord in the name of rock, Robert Johnson is just hiding in there, even if just a little bit. And it goes without saying, you know, bands use imagery like Satan, and so it actually does have a place in this music, a music that is rooted in gospel, a music that brings us all so much joy. This The rock has a yin, to the role of the yang, if you get what I'm saying. And just to reiterate it a little more, here's a standard blues riff. And then Robert Johnson would be doing something like this. And then just add a little pep to it. And then... And then you got a Chuck Berry song. So there you have it, folks. Rock and roll is blues, and Robert Johnson could very well be patient zero, and it still infects us all to this day. And while it may be somewhat inaccurate to say rock and roll all started with Robert Johnson and his devilish guitar, it is true that it is certainly one of the main ingredients in the musical Strict 9 cocktail that we all know and love. So next time you listen to Robert Johnson, or heck, even rock music for that matter, Don't listen too closely, or else there might be a hellhound on your trail chasing you down to the crossroads. And so that concludes another episode of Rock and Roll History. Happy Halloween, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. I promise I will be back soon, so please stick around. If you miss me so much, you can always visit our website at www.rockandrollhistory.com. Be safe, have a good one, and remember to rock and roll!